Welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. What is up? Welcome to episode 217. Thanks so much for listening. It means so much to me. If I brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook. Let me know what you want to hear more of. And please be sure to share the podcast. I'm truly grateful for your support. Thank you. You can learn all the skills in the world, math, business, writing, but the right mindset will always trump them all. It's the great unlock to all other skills. Success and happiness come down to one single component, and that's mindset. In order to achieve our goals in life, our mindset needs to match those aspirations. And this is exactly what I pack into my free weekly newsletter. As a free subscriber, you receive the Mastering Your Mindset newsletter once per week, where I break down step-by-step processes to master your mindset and practical growth tips. If you haven't subscribed, but you enjoy the content I drop on this podcast, then you're missing out. Click the link in the show notes to subscribe for free to the Mastering Your Mindset newsletter. Today we have another special guest that joins the pod, Jesse Finkelstein. Jesse is a doctoral student in clinical psychology at Rutgers University and a DBT therapist. He's also a researcher and clinician at the Dialectical Behavior Therapy Clinic at Rutgers University, where his main areas of research include the use of technology and new media to deliver effective psychotherapeutic interventions. Dialectical Behavior Therapy, also known as DBT, was established back in the 1980s to help those who experience intense emotional dysregulation. Numerous scientific studies have validated DBT's ability to decrease and eliminate ineffective behaviors, as well as serving as an effective intervention for depression, binge eating, PTSD, and substance use disorder. He is also the creator of the Game of Real Life, a -a one-of-a-kind card game rooted in DBT. The Game of Real Life is a fun and accessible way to learn how to cope effectively and achieve your goals within the framework of a card game. Based on the principles of DBT, the game offers skills to increase the quality of relationships, develop mindfulness, reduce stress, and prevent burnout. Jesse and I discuss the four main areas of DBT, mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, and distress tolerance, along with how we can implement DBT in our daily lives. And lastly, we discuss how to sit with discomfort and how we can tolerate that discomfort. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating 
today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Poetry to my ears, whenever I hear someone talk about sort of habits and how we can look at habits as ways of improving our lives and as well as sort of disrupting either behaviors or thoughts that are getting in the way of us sort of leading lives that are valuable to us. Yeah, could could not agree more. I'm, you know, there, there was another common thread here between what you do. So I went to um, college for graphic design. So when I s- saw that you spent, uh, you did 15 years as a graphic designer, um, it's what I, like I said, went to college for. It's the first business that I actually started was a graphic design firm. I'm, I'm kind of, I, this is one of the first things that stood out to me was the illustration skills in the booklet, as well as the cards and even the conflict cards. So hats off. I'm just for more of my edification. Was that all you for these illustrations? Like, I, I'm, I'm really curious. It was, um, you know, in graduate school, you have a lot of time sitting down in class. So it's always nice to have a pen and paper handy to, um, you know, keep yourself occupied. But in all seriousness, the way that I have, firstly, uh, let me, I'll, I'll back up and say this, like psychologists are brilliant at creating meaningful interventions to help people's lives be better. And they're not really great at sort of making those interventions things that people actually want to engage with, to make them things that they want to hold and bring into their life. And so one of the things that I was really reflecting on when I first started in graduate school was like, oh, wow, something like DBT is incredible. Like, what would it look like if it was really appealing, if people want to play with it, if people were really excited about seeing it? And... So that's when I first started thinking about, okay, let's, let's think about like illustrating the skills. And then personally, the best way for me to learn is by sort of drawing to something. So like, you know, I was learning all these skills before I ever became a DBT therapist by illustrating them. And it was another way of sort of metabolizing the information. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that analogy or that that wording choice there, metabolizing the information, because I think I know I'm a super visual person, but I know a lot of people that I interact with are also visual individuals. But when we also take something very complex and being able to boil it into an image, it's it's this common language that irrelevant of who you are, where you're from it's tangible. It's something that we can connect on and we make impressions or decisions or summarize it in our minds based on that visual interpretation. So I, I think that you, you guys knocked it out of the park with it. I love it. Thank you. So, so I'm, I'm curious 
what what was this transit or the reason for the transition going from graphic design to the game of real life and you're also what the co-founder of Therahive which by the way the illustrations on that website and just the user experience below on point I'm I'm curious that that transition for you like what really knocked it out for you to say hmm there's something over here so you know I I so I spent as you said a good number of years doing design work and and what I love about design is that you're creating experiences for people. And I feel like if done right, you're sort of maybe potentially shifting people's perspective a little bit. And like I say that in relation to design and art, it's like it's like all of a sudden you look at the world slightly differently. And all of a sudden you're like, you know, like whatever sort of grip that you hold on to re- like reality really tightly, you loosen up a little bit and you sort of become open to sort of new ways of thinking and behaving. And that's the part about design and art that I was always excited about. And then at a certain point, I felt like I wanted to do work that where I was sort of in more immediate contact to people's personal suffering, where I could be of more immediate help. And so I made the decision to, you know, go back to graduate school for clinical psychology. And, um, and really, they're not so different. They're all about like, how do you, in sitting in a room and speaking with someone, using sort of speed and flow, how do you help someone sort of begin to look at things slightly differently so that they can potentially engage in new habits that are in line with their goals? And um, yeah, I don't know, now combining those things, I, I feel like I'm living the dream, or at least my dream. It's like it's salt and pepper, really. They kind of go hand in hand. So... Was there something though in 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 your to to kind of dig a little deeper here? So I, I talk about vulnerability a lot on the podcast. So you know about my past experience that we were talking about at the beginning of this. But even to you know younger me when my parents got a divorce and not having a father figure and how that really impacted my life. And one of the benefits that I have found in being vulnerable with my audiences, it also gives them a safe place too as well. And I think there's, you know, I've had some guests on the podcast and we've talked about vulnerability, but it is so common in today's world, but it's not, it's becoming more of a discussion, which is remarkable, just mental health in general. It's very refreshing, but I'm I'm curious if there were some other ingredients kind of in your childhood to have as well, if if you're okay with exploring there, that really said, I see this combination, the salt and pepper thing, but this is what some having someone like this adding this value and this clarity in the world would do for me because of what I went through. Was there something for you that really clicked in those in that decision? Yeah, I mean, I I, I love that question, and I like similarly agree. Like, I think like you know, as a therapist, and I think that this is something where the field is really shifting. Like, I'm no different than any of the people that I work with, my clients. Like, we're all just struggling on this path to find meaning in our lives and lead a life without suffering. So I'll say there are a couple of points. I would say that while, like, during my career as a designer, I loved aspects of it, but I would also wake up just every day really questioning what I was doing. Just full of, like, lots of regret, thinking about things I could have done differently. Feeling... Like, I just wasn't connected to what was important to me. 
And I would often like look at other people around me that were having successes in different disciplines or fields. And I would feel a lot of jealousy. And I'd be like, oh, like that person who just like, you know, wrote an article or that person who just had a gallery. I'd be like, I want that. And, and I think in general, like while I was not miserable, I didn't feel satisfied. And then it sort of culminated, and I feel like this answer feels a little pat sometimes, but it's the truth. It culminated in the 2016 election when, you know, as, as a person living in New York, as a queer person, as a person that's very, has always been mindful of the rights of those who often exist on the outside of whatever norm there is, I was really scared and I was really upset and I was sad and I sort of was like, okay, like, this is it. Like, I, like, I, I just, I, like, I need to do something both to help myself and to help others. Mm, I love that. Beautiful, beautifully put. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, um, it's amazing when irrelevant of the situation, when we have these experiences, our ability to twist them into something that projects us and catapults us to something beautiful and adding value to not only ourselves and bringing some clarity, but also to other people along that journey. There's nothing more fulfilling than, than doing that. So applaud you for, for that transition for sure. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say it's been in, in, you know, I never really checked in with myself as a designer throughout all those years, like, what are my values? What's important to me? I just never thought that that was something that people did. Like, it just never even occurred to me. And now as a therapist, I have so much language and so many tools to work with clients to assess, okay, what is important to you? Are you moving in the direction of things that are important to you? That now having that own clarity for myself, I don't live with that same level of regret. Like, I gotta tell you, I don't really get jealous all that much. Like it's, it really, like, I think when you are moving towards your values, things are, not that things are easy, but things become lighter in a way. Well, it's this idea, I think, of when everything's important, nothing's important. So when you define these core values and these core metrics, it's like a business, right? The the culture is hinged off of the core values and the North Star that the business defines. As in individuals, we can take actually a lot away from a, a business that has ran well. And I have noticed, I, I'm guilty of that too as well, not having those core values and thinking that this is a thing that people do. You know, this is a thing that people have. These are things that people have defined. And I think it was my first experience with therapy was actually understanding like, yeah, these are important because these are the the foundations, the pillars of the home that you're about to build, the the empire, whatever you're trying to to go for. And if you don't have these, well, that building is going to be, you know, going back and forth. And there isn't a lot of structural integrity with a structure that isn't going completely vertical. And it's it is baffling once you do experience that 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 aha moment to go. This makes a lot of sense. This just clicks. I love the phrase that if everything is important, then nothing's important. Like I, I, I am very much an existentialist in that. Like I think that you know, at the end of the day, this is my opinion. At the end of the day, we live, we die. 
And we need to make a conscious effort to decide what it is that we're going to invest in, what it is that we are going to move towards, what it is that's important to us. Because if we don't, then all of a sudden, people are going to tell us. People are going to say, oh, this is what you should be doing. And that's really where misery is going to happen. Once we start relying on others to, to dictate and determine our values, uh, then we're going down someone else's path and not li like leading our own lives. Mm. So spot on. In a, this is a, a, a material example, but yet the, the, the lesson in it is, the, is, is valuable. So I had an employee young getting his second vehicle and – he was so confident about his decision. Like he had done a month of research, you know, the, the price was right. The options were right. He was downgrading so he could put money towards investing and not spending it on a, a an expensive vehicle, like making some really sound decisions and reason for those decisions. And he called me actually today and he was at the dealership and his dad got to him before the dealership. And said, well, maybe you wait. We'll talk about it. You know, we'll weigh some more options. And the one thing that I told him is I said, listen, you know what's best for you. So I'm not discrediting that your dad may bring up some valuable points. But you have told me that you have made – you have done a lot of research. And you have defined your goal with going to this vehicle. What will leaving the dealership and speaking with your dad actually resolve? Most likely, the door that will be opened is analysis paralysis, and he will talk you out of it. And then you will be a week behind, two weeks behind, and you would have spent all this energy for making a decision that ultimately deep down inside, you actually know the answer to. And this happens just in so many areas of our lives where we look for these external resources to really help guide us. And I'm certainly not saying that, you know, getting opinions or obviously going to therapy and doing these things, there's so much value in that. But at the end of the day, you have to make a decision with your best interest in mind. And there's so much of life and noise that it, our decisions sometimes become predicated on what society thinks is best for us or what our neighbor is doing, but that's fitting for their life. And of course, most people are coming from a really good place, but it's their place and it's a first perspective game life. So we need to put on the, the, the binoculars, the, the, the bifocals that make sense for our perspective and our needs. I, you know, and I think the other, the, the additional aspect there is we also have to recognize that we're going to fuck up. Yeah. That if we are on the path, if we are moving towards what's important to us and doing things that we value, there's going to be pain. There's no way. And I think that's where, when, that's, I think that's where a decision paralysis sort of comes in is because we, we don't want to experience that pain. We think, oh, we, if we can get all this information, we're going to make the right choice. And that right choice is going to make sure that we never fuck up. Mm. And the reality is, that if we are moving towards the thing that's important to us, we are going to experience both pleasure and pain. It just so happens that when we are living according to our values, over time, we're increasingly going to accumulate more of those pleasant experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's, that's, that's so true. Yeah. And, and a lot of this is life is, 
it's like process of elimination with with seeking out these that North Star going after the North Star. It's like we could sit here all day and debate and, you know, put all this mental energy into making a decision. But ultimately, you know what will allow us to get there faster? Not that it's all about speed, but will what will allow us to get to where we want to go faster is taking action towards the things that we think are the right decisions and ultimately getting feedback from the action that we think is best with the information that we have at the moment. I completely agree. And listen, like, I didn't go to back to graduate school until I was in my 30s. Like, it took me a lot of trial and error to figure out what things were important to me. And I don't think there's like a timeline on folks figuring that out. And if I could encourage or if folks are listening, like, to this, and if there's a takeaway here, of course, they're listening to this. But if there's a takeaway here, you know, begin to check in and do that work now. There are plenty of resources where you can begin to sort of define for yourself, okay, what are my values? And experiment. Try it out. I'm I'm curious. So your title is a DBT therapist, correct? Mm-hmm. Tell us, because I know the audience will find so much value in this because it's a, it's a culmination of kind of everything that I talk about, but in a very perfect scientific form, if you will, but how do one, what is DBT and two, how do we leverage this or utilize this in our daily lives? My two favorite questions. Your sweet spot. (laughs) My sweet spot. So, okay. So, um, I'll say, I'll start off by saying, so I am currently a doctoral student clinical psychology. And during my first year, I had the privilege of meeting and then working with Dr. Shereen Rizvi, who runs the Dialectical Behavior Therapy Clinic at Rutgers University. And she was a mentor, is a mentor, was a mentee, excuse me, of Dr. Marshall Linehan, who created and developed Dialectical Behavior Therapy. Dialectical behavior therapy, it is a behavioral therapy, and it was originally created for folks experiencing intense emotion dysregulation. And what that means is is folks who felt their emotions so intensely that they would often engage in really ineffective behaviors to relieve that discomfort. And that could look like substance use, That could look like suicidal behaviors. That could look like non-suicidal self-injurious behaviors. And so what Dr. Linehan found was that when she tried to do sort of what we refer to as the second wave cognitive behavioral therapy, really sort of change-oriented stuff, how can we build new habits? How can we problem solve out of this emotional discomfort? Her clients felt really invalidated. They were like, you're telling me to change and you're not recognizing the pain, the absolute hell that I'm in now. So then she also had a Zen Buddhist background and she started sort of to adapt and adopt some of the mindfulness principles and some of the acceptance principles around Zen Buddhism into the therapy. And she found that when we play with these two poles, acceptance and change, Clients responded very well. It's one of the reasons why DBT is the premier evidence-based treatment for folks with suicidal and non-self 
uh, non-suicidal self-interest behaviors. In that, like this sort of dialectic between acceptance and change, constantly playing between those poles, we can arrive at a synthesis or a new way of relating to our experience and environment. Um, so that's a very abstract way of sort of explaining what DBT is. DBT is also something incredibly practical. So DBT comprises four modules, a set of skills in each module. The modules are mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, and emotion regulation. And in each one of those modules, folks learn specific skills. And these are the skills that I use for the card game. And, you know, the broad goal is, or the idea is that when we experience emotion dysregulation, when we feel too overwhelmed by our emotions, it's very hard for us to take in new information, then engage in more effective action, and then move towards our goals and build a life worth living. So what we're doing in DBT is we're learning how to effectively regulate our emotional experience so that we can be flexible, we can think flexibly, we can engage in values-oriented action. The, the game does a wonderful job when you pull out those conflict cards because you only have is it six cards in your hand, right? So yes. here's the conflict. Yeah. You are, I don't want to say stuck, but you have six options you can work with, right? Which mm -hmm. do you think is most applicable or effective with the current conflict that you're facing? And what's really interesting, something that, because I enjoy psychology. I love human behavior. I'm so fascinated by it. Yeah. What's very interesting is when you listen to everybody's explanation. So the, the legitimate rule of the game, of course, talking to the creator, 30 seconds to explain why your card should be the one that's chosen by the, the decision maker or the, the, the gatekeeper, right? And what's very interesting is there is no wrong answer, but because you're playing a game, everyone in the room will justify why that's the best reasoning. And it's so interesting because I had this kind of zoom out experience where I was thinking to myself, if we just did play this game in perpetuity, imagine our ability to actually zoom out in real life because you do, you said it earlier, Jesse, I, I felt like. I now have all of these tools I can use in my tool belt. And it's like, yeah, you do. While the while it breaks down to four categories, within each of those falls a lot of subsets, tools that you can use to effectively address this conflict. Whether I think one of them was, you know, you have um, you used to use uh, substance as kind of a means you're you're driving to a family gathering and all of a sudden you see um your uh drug dealer's house you know and just all of these different things that you're like okay well maybe not a situation necessarily i would be in however how would i handle that and all of a sudden you start to make those connections in your head with well, this is kind of interesting because there's a similar scenario with X or Y, and I could have applied this too as well. So I feel like this game is just a game that irrelevant of how many times you go through the conflicts that it kind of it, it chisels it into your head on how to 
address or go about some of these things. And so it was just really cool watching people that I've engaged with that I've seen them in real life do something different, but it's like, look at you just made this car card work. You sold me on this idea. So then now it's about applying it to your, to your own life and in, in real life. All of those things make me incredibly happy to hear. Like I, you know, the goal in the game was always to provide sort of a low stakes way for people to learn and practice these skills. And to your point, like, yeah, not, not every conflict is going to be relevant for each person. And I think like the universal aspect in a lot of situations is that we all engage in ineffective behaviors, oftentimes because we don't want to experience pain, because we're scared, because if we think we allow ourselves to sit with an emotion, it'll be intolerable. And so while, you know, someone might not have an experience with substance use, can promise you that perhaps they're getting on their phone to distract themselves when they feel shame, or they're, in my case, working all the time so that they don't have to feel, let's say, something like grief. And so these skills are so effective at teaching us, this is how to sit with discomfort. This is how to tolerate uncomfortable emotions and that's truly the path to emotional freedom. I mean, that's that's the path out of suffering, is to know that emotions are not dangerous, that we can sit and allow them to be there without engaging in behaviors that are not in line with our goals. It's this, I, I've said it before on the pod, but get really unfucking comfortable because that's how you start getting comfortable. Like that is life in a nutshell. That is the the title under life's painting, if you will. I love that. Yes. Get really uncomfortable. Yeah. So I would love to. So you talk, you spoke about the, the four, which at the beginning of this book, right, we've got mindfulness, um, we've got emotion regulation, we've got interpersonal effectiveness, we've got distress tolerance. I think a good exercise or a good point for us to bring up is each of these kind of an example with them. Right. So mindfulness, how you would capture this and, and, and what would be an example in real life? And then we can go through the next one, emotion regulation, interpersonal effectiveness and distress tolerance, because I think talk talk about visual. Right. Um, the audience listening, I, I think that would bring a lot of value for them. Absolutely. So so mindfulness and many folks are going to be who are listening are probably familiar with the term. It is attending to the present moment deliberately and without judgment. So an example of what that looks like is, so I'm currently looking at you, Scott, and next to your face is a is my face. And periodically, I will begin to look at myself and start having judgment thoughts like, do I look weird? Do I look old? And then in DBT, there is a skill called participate. And what participate is to throw yourself into the present moment fully. And so it actually... Like, as we were first talking, I was like, oh, wait, I need to fully participate in this moment. And so I was accessing that skill deliberately and mindful. I became, I was, I was observing, describing also DBT mindfulness skills that I was um, distracted. And then I made a conscious effort to bring my attention back to you and back to our conversation. That's awesome. 
that was a that was a great example considering we're we're right on this call um emotion regulation so emotion regulation so emotion regulation is basically the the set of skills that help us manage to regulate our emotion to decrease our vulnerability to difficult emotions and to change emotions and this is really this is something that i always find very exciting to change our emotional experience when it no longer fits the facts or if it is not effective in us leading our life worth living goals as well as i should add just developing the capacity to allow and really love our emotions so what that would look like i'll say this if there was one dbt skill that I could only ever use, it would be mindfulness of current emotions. It's a DBT skill that basically, if I am, let's say, you know, I've, I've got a lot of work coming up this week. I've got a bunch of projects. And there was a moment yesterday where I was feeling some intense anxiety and fear, like, oh shit, how am I gonna get this done? And then oftentimes when we feel like a primary emotion like that with fear, we may feel a secondary emotion. And it might be accompanied by the thought like, oh, Jesse, you're such an idiot for not getting more work done. Why did you procrastinate? And then I might begin to sort of start feeling some guilt or shame. So basically with mindfulness of current emotions, what we're doing is we are noticing and observing what the emotions are coming up. And we're actually imagining ourselves riding these emotions as a wave. So we're not pushing them away. We're not holding on to them. We're just imagining, we're just seeing emotions can come and go. That in fact, emotions don't last longer for them more than 90 seconds. And then we, we figure out where in the body we notice these emotions. Do I feel it in my chest? Do I feel it in my belly? And then over time, what we do is we begin to develop the awareness that emotions are something that we can actually allow to be there without trying to distract ourselves or run away from them. And so the next time I feel anxiety, it's not like, oh shit, I need to beat myself up right now. Oh shit, I better get working or else someone's gonna yell at me. It's like, okay, there's anxiety. I can sit with that. I can allow that to be there. So that's my example of mindfulness of current emotions. You know what? what's, what's funny about this is I have five episodes I need to write and record and this just happened to me earlier this week too as well where I was like, why did I jam so much because I'm going to be flying out to Colorado so I, I need to get a lot of these episodes in and I thought to my – I got stress and then anxious like, oh my gosh, am I going to finish all of this? And I recognize it, and I always – I've told my audience this, but just articulating what you're going through out loud can really, really be helpful because in our mind when it's bouncing around, it seems like it's – we cannot pass it. Like that is too high of a, a mountain or a wall to climb. And what's really interesting was your point around emotions being there for 90 seconds. When you start to like say these things out loud, it's like, oh – wow, okay, well, this isn't that, you know, big of a mound to climb. And oh, by the way, I've done this 70 times before. So why is this time going to be any different for me? So, so Scott, what you just did is another DBT skill called checking the facts. 
So, you know, it's like we can't like in order for us to engage in effective problem solving, in order for us to operate from what we in DBT call wise mind and not emotion mind, we need to first, to your point, label the facts. Here are the facts of the situation. I've got these many podcasts lined up. Okay, I'm noticing anxiety. Okay, now is there a problem to be solved here? Like maybe I can get started. Or maybe I can, you know, act opposite to my anxiety urge. Oftentimes for a lot of folks, when they feel anxiety, they try to run away from it. And that just leads to more procrastination. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I think, and also then checking the facts and asking yourself, okay, in my past, have I really not engaged in this work when I had to? Has it not turned out well? No. And then that can help change your emotion. Now you're feeling less anxious, maybe slightly more confident. These tools, I have to say, it's like caffeine in a way, but in a good way. Like it's not to, cause I know someone listening probably has some sort of attachment or to caffeine. I mean, speaking me, of yeah. it. however, but, <laughs> but I, it's, it's so exciting when you do have them because you shuffle through the Rolodex mm-hmm. of options. You're like, now I'm picking this one today. And it's, it's, experimental but it's just so freeing and refreshing because then you're like well i can take charge of so much more of my life than i'm currently taking charge of and then what is possible for me i i completely agree and i will say this like when i first came upon dbt and i was first learning the skills i was sort of like like you know the skills will literally map out each step for problem solving Like every step you need to do to engage in problem solving, there's something like six or seven steps. And I thought to myself, like, really? Like, don't we just know how to problem solve? And let me tell you, like, like these things are not easy. Like actually, like having the prompt of labeling without judgment the situation, like that's huge. Because what is it that we're problem solving? Are we trying to problem solve our feeling? Are we probably problem solve what we're actually observing and noticing? And that distinction is huge. And so I I feel like DBT is on the one hand, at times very obvious. And at the other hand, really just incredibly brilliant at distilling complex information and giving us sort of a guide to sort of really be effective in our lives. Hmm. Yeah, and 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 we do a, a really good job of overcomplicating a, a lot of things. So having some some guidance here is 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 life changing. So let's let's talk about the the last two interpersonal effectiveness. Okay. So interpersonal effectiveness are a set of skills to help us get what we want, set limits with others, as well as maintaining our self respect. And as well as sort of maintaining our relationships. And there are skills for each, like, sort of one of those three sort of categories that I outlined. And so in interpersonal effectiveness, there is a skill called, which is one of DBT's more famous or infamous ones, called Dear Man. And it's very prescriptive. It's describe, express, assert, reinforce. And then the man is, while you're doing those things, you do them mindfully you act confidently, you negotiate. And I use dear man all the freaking time. So for instance, Scott, if I was with you and I was like, you know, let's say you and I got into an argument, I could say, you know, Scott, here are the facts as I see them. 
then I would express how I feel. Like, you know, I feel really hurt by what happened. Then I would make an assertion, you know, in the future, would you mind, you know, doing this thing for me? And then I would reinforce that behavior. If you do that, like, you know, I would be happy to do X, Y, and Z for you. And it's basically, you know, a really powerful way to sort of organize communication so that it doesn't escalate and it doesn't lead to conflict. This, I feel like, is, uh, I mean, they're all very useful for sure. But this one, I feel, is very powerful because so many people put themselves on the back burner, whether in their personal life, whether in their career, whether it be in a public setting, private setting. We notoriously throw other people before ourselves. And something that I've said on the pod is being selfish is a selfish is a form of being selfless. And I think that this really captivates exactly that. Um, and lastly, distress tolerance. So distress tolerance are the skills that we use. Let's say like our emotions are like from zero to 10. And zero is like, we are really fucking chilled out. And 10 is like, my head's going to explode. We want to use the distress tolerance skills, you know, anywhere from like a seven to a 10. And basically at those numbers, we're so overwhelmed that oftentimes we may have the urge to engage in really ineffective behaviors. Like we may have the urge to drink in order to escape a feeling or to smoke or to yell at someone that we love. And so we engage in the distress tolerance skills in order to get through a crisis without making it worse. So there's one set of skills called the TIP skills, and it stands for temperature, temperature intense exercise, um, pace breathing, and paired muscle relaxation. And each of these skills have the benefit of actually reducing our physiological arousal. So what we're doing is we're actually, in a very short amount of time, very quickly and very efficiently, we're taking down our sort of our the sort of our physiological arousal so that we can then use other skills. So what that would look like, um, the T for for temperature. Basically, what you would do for that is you would get a bowl of ice water, or you can get some ice packs. Then you at you know bending over at ninety degrees, you can stick your head into the bowl of ice water or with the ice packs against your face and cheeks and then you hold your breath for about 30 seconds and the idea there is that you're activating the mammalian dive reflex which when done correctly it reduces it activates your parasympathetic nervous system reduces your sympathetic nervous system which essentially means you are increasing your rest and digest response, you're reducing your fight or flight response, and you're really forcing your body to calm down. Your heart rate decreases, you know, your ner nervous system calms. Now, I should qualify that, you know, always consult with a doctor before you use that skill because it's very powerful. And so, you know, when I'm working with clients, oftentimes I'll be like, okay, let's get a bowl of water, let's get the ice packs, let's bring down the temperature right now. That I even on the on the card you guys have that that asterisk on you know consult medical profession. Um, this is one that I have actually leveraged. I actually use it quite a bit. Just taking filling up my sink with cold water, and I didn't necessarily understand the science behind it, but I knew that it was effective. And again, another tool. It's like the resources just sitting around us. If you have tap water to your house. 
you can do and the ability to bend over at a 90 degree angle well then great you have all the tools to make it happen so i'm curious kind of in closing here so as an individual that's so dedicated which is beautiful to just your career and your life to to mental health i'm curious what are some of your daily practices dbt related or not uh, around mental health i i love that question um i'll say a couple of things um one if in addition to mindfulness of current emotions i could ask every one of my clients and this goes for myself as well sleep hygiene and proper sleep we know that lack of sleep poor sleep has huge 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 mental health and physical health consequences so that's that's high up there so you know doing my best to maintain a consistent bedtime a consistent wake time you know not using devices before i go to bed all of those sleep hygiene things are huge um I do have a daily mindfulness practice. And for me, that looks like a formal meditation. I sit and for 20 minutes, sometimes less, I will sit and I'll meditate. Um, exercise as well. I mean, I feel like I'm saying things that aren't necessarily that people listening have probably heard no, this is good. a thousand yeah. different times. And they have because these things tend to be really effective. And then I will say that like everyone, I encounter suffering all the time. Like I beat myself up or I experience anxiety. I experience sadness. I experience shame. And I do think being willing in the moment to allow myself to have that experience has been crucial for my mental health because it has given me the confidence that I can tolerate my emotions without resorting to ineffective means to escape them. Hmm. Yeah, the the um I had a a guest on the podcast. His name is Dr. Kevin Gilliland. I think he was on Good Morning America and we talked about sleep quite a, a a bit and this is something that, you know, a few years ago I was horrible with. Now I have a very very strict rule. 10 p.m. in bed, not going to bed. 5:30 wake up every morning. Monday through Sunday, like clockwork. And it has changed my life, not interrupting my circadian rhythm. It is unbelievable and so underrated. I feel like it's becoming more popular, but it is because there was this like household culture of just work, work, Mm -hmm. work, work, work. And, you know, I was guilty of that staying up until 12 and getting up at six or seven. It just was not good. I was drained all the time. So that healthy habit around sleeping is uh, such a priceless one. And mindfulness, I'm the same way I use intelligent change. Actually, they have an app called the five minute journal. They also do beautiful, beautiful physical print. I know being graphic designer, you'll, you'll appreciate. So intelligent change. They have um, a, a beautiful journal. I use their app, but just, you know, three to four thoughts of just gratitude in the morning, how you're feeling for the day, what you're going to do, what's your promise to yourself for the day, an affirmation, 
and just a, a beautiful quote to open up the day. And it's it's amazing, these little things. And I'm sure the listeners have heard about these things many times over. But the fact is, more people talking about them, the more consistently people are like, okay, well, I got to do this or I should really check this out. And if it's, if this many people are talking about these things. And, and can, I, can I try to sell it in a new way for folks maybe they haven't thought of before? Absolutely. Which is that the way that I think about it is this. If you want to be creative, if you want to be innovative, if you want to, you know, begin to think differently and show up present for your life, you need to give your body the fuel. You know, new learning is one of the most metabolically taxing things that we can do. And if you are running a deficit, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you are burnt out, if you're not eating intuitively, your mind is, your body is not going to have the fuel to engage in that new learning. Your emotions are going to be all over the place. So, you know, there's lots of talk about self-care and yada, yada. Like if, if for any other reason than for you to live a more meaningful, present, innovative, creative life, do it for that. Awesome note to end on. Boom. Icing on the cake. So, because this game is mind-blowing, we've talked about it quite a bit today. Where can people find the game of real life? I know you guys, you did a, just so everybody knows, you threw a Kickstarter campaign, surpassed your goal. I think it was like three grand to to start out. Well, the goal was three grand for 150 initial um, uh, pieces here, game pieces. And you guys surpassed that. And obviously it's taken off. I adore the hell out of this game. This will become, talk about rituals and just habits. This is something that we're going to be using in our household. So where can people find the game and follow you too as well? Sure. So you can find the game at every media retailer. Um, I have links on my website, uh, talkgood.org. You can follow me on talk is good on Instagram and um, DBT TikTok. Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the only tool you need to navigate life with Jesse Finkelstein. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at the motivated underscore mind and on Facebook at the motivated mind podcast. Don't forget to join me every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. I love you all. And thanks so much for listening. Motivated Mind is a legacy division.